Are there nerds here tonight? Nerds! You are a part of the lucky 10,000 with your hosts, Evan. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. And Carissa. Not hot in spite of being a geek, but because of it. Being a nerd, it's not about what you love. It's about how you love it. Hey guys. Hey everybody. How's it going? This is Evan. And I'm Carissa. And we are the podcast, The Lucky 10,000, the podcast that gets you luckier than Horny Potter at a geek porn star convention. Wow. Okay. It was a stretch. Yeah. I went for it. Or, anyway. you know, it could be thematic. It could be like an 80s kid in a slap bracelet store. Oh, there you go. It could be thematic. And the reason that Carissa says that is that today we're going to be talking about nostalgia. I mean, first off, really, I want to thank Winston last week for coming on the show. And we had a really, really, really fun discussion about uh, Star Wars versus Star Trek. Carissa, you run the uh, the Gmail. We gotten any replies on that one? I got a comment through Google Plus, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. One of our friends and listeners of the show, he actually said it was a really great episode and that he thinks that the only real chance he sees for Star Trek is to let the Borg assimilate the entire galaxy and then go to war. Yeah, that's a good point. But then wouldn't the Borg turn on stuff? You know what? We don't need to get back into that discussion. But good point. I still think Q is their best chance, as we all sort of agreed on. Either way, that kind of got us thinking. We're we're all very nostalgic for both Star Trek and Star Wars. And it really got the both of us thinking about what other things we're nostalgic about. Now, we're taking toys out of this equation because we are coming up on December. And I think it would be a lot of fun to talk about the toys that we remember being our favorites or the best and worst, maybe even Christmas gifts we got as far yeah. as the big, you know, things that we remember. But we are children of pop culture. I think our generation more than most grew up in the 80s when a lot of things like video games, cable TV, movies, all this stuff just sort of we were bombarded with I think more than any generation before us. So our generation, I think that's why this has grown up to be such a big geek generation is because we're so inundated with pop culture all the time. And technology was on such a rise starting in the 80s and just kept going and getting faster and bigger and, well, smaller, actually, and better (laughs) that we are sort of products of that. And that's I'm not saying that in a negative way. A lot of those people have gone on to do some great things. So we decided that we would look back on some of the things that were very influential in our lives. And I actually kind of delved deep into my memory to pick the stuff that probably or at least maybe not everyone can look back on. So it's not sure. like all 80s kids are going to go, uh, yeah, everybody had that. We all remember it. And it's right. not anything new. So I tried to come up with some stuff that was something that really was, for me, a big part of my childhood. Well, and I definitely, you know, the things I remember that made an impact are a lot of the things that other people probably impacted them too but that's why we sort of have a generational connection so i'll be touching on some of the more common things as well my caveat to this is i've spoken a lot on any podcast i've ever been on about my love of horror movies obviously there were certain horror movies that had a huge impact on me that i've already talked about ad nauseum so i'm not going to get too deep into that but if something does come up that i haven't talked about i may give it a mention but i don't want to also make this yet another evan talks horror podcast thank you (laughs) about it forever but let's go ahead and start we're going to take it by sections and for me there are very close memories i have throughout my childhood and especially for the both of us and for you especially i'm sure growing up in seattle you know like everybody has 
there's we all know those people that can be like, oh, you know what? I don't really like TV or I don't really play video games or I don't really go to the movies. But music, everyone, everywhere, all over the world and in many cases, animals respond to music in a very positive way. So everyone has something that impacted them musically. And you and I are both children of the 80s, like we said. I was born in 77. You were born in... 79. 79. Yeah, so we're pretty close. So we were there during all the ups and downs of the 80s music wave. And I, again, since we've already done a podcast on this, I've already said many, many times I'm a huge hard rock and metal fan. But, you know, sometimes the earlier music that you hear isn't the music you end up growing to love. You know, we had a big influence on me was the fact that we had cable TV for one year in like 1984. Okay. My stepdad got it because he wanted to keep track of college basketball. Okay. So that was, you know, there were certain things that I remember and will never forget that I went through the whole everything 80s sucked phase because I was just trying to rebel against my own nostalgia and childhood. But just recently, even, I went back and watched something like the uh, AHA video, Take On Me. Hell yeah. I even posted on Facebook. It holds up. But yeah, something like that, like I remember that having an impact, and it is stuck in my mind, because A, the video was so creative, and it told a story, and Well, because song, at that point, like, MTV was new. Very so new. The ability to actually put visuals to the words or the meaning behind whatever you were, whatever music you were making, that was very impactful. And so... But it was also so, like, people just didn't know what to do with it at the beginning. Yeah. To the point where a lot of the first videos on MTV definitely don't hold up because yeah. it was all about cheesy effects and, you know, they're stuck in somebody's garage trying to make something look cool. And, you know, the one thing about nostalgia is most of the time, if you're doing something simply because it looks or sounds cool, it will not last. Right. And it will not be remembered. And it really seemed like that band and that song in particular was really something they creatively were inspired to do. And... The video itself, if you don't know it, look it up on YouTube. If you're not a child of the 80s and you never heard it before, what's wrong with you? I, as a f hardcore fan of hard rock and heavy metal, I can go back and say that's my first big memory, other than like Thriller, which we've already talked about, of music having an impact. Yeah, I mean, Michael Jackson would absolutely, in terms of my own musical tastes, would be the earliest I can remember Oh, absolutely. Of an artist helping me develop my own musical taste would, right. without question, be Michael Jackson. Well, and then those things evolve. You know, I can remember uh, <laughs> the first band. Have I told the story about the first band I ever claimed was my favorite? I don't think so. Kind of in response to peer pressure. My brother and I were at a skating rink in Pelzer, which I actually went back to last year for the first time. And it, since I was probably, I don't know, eight. And it hasn't changed a bit. Skating rinks don't, don't change. They don't change at all. If you just want to experience what it's like to be in a time warp... Go to any skating rink. And they're still playing Duran Duran and Absolutely. Enter Sandman. Absolutely. And it is exactly the have, same as it was when you were 12. It's amazing. They still haven't steamed cleaned the carpets. There's just a lot of, for some reason, that one thing can still be successful and they don't have to do anything to it. I'm yep. pretty sure they still have the same hot dogs on display. Oh, almost certainly. But I remember standing there and my brother telling me what his favorite, who his favorite musician was at the time, which was Phil Collins. This was around the time No Jacket Required came out. Okay. So if you don't know the big hit from that album, it was su su Studio. Not their strongest. Just say the word. Oh, no, not at all. Um, but then he asked me what mine was and I didn't have one. But just because I didn't want to say I don't have one, I said them because there's something there was something playing on the roller rink speakers at the time. And it was Huey Lewis and the News. Hey. So from then on, my favorite band for the next like five years until I discovered ACDC 
was Huey Lewis in the news. There's nothing wrong with Huey Lewis in the news. They rocked. No, there was nothing wrong with Huey Lewis in the news. Huey Lewis, by the way, aged very well. He really did. And so those those things stick out in my mind. Um, but obviously for our generation, then you get into the 90s. And then there's things like, I remember, so we didn't have cable again. We would go to see my grandparents every Thanksgiving. They did. So I would usually, once I became an angsty teen, cordon myself off into the bedroom with at the back of the house with the TV and just watch MTV around the clock. And that's where I saw the video for um, The Unforgiven, The Unforgiven for the first time. Oh, nice. Which is a great video. Yeah, it really is. And one of their best songs. I mean, you can give Metallica whatever kind of shit you want for the Black Album being a little bit more mainstream, but Unforgiven is a great song and a great video. At that point, I had started getting into ACDC and Harder Rock because I heard it from my brother's room and immediately gravitated towards it. Okay. And then, but that was also the first time I saw Smells Like Teen Spirit, mm. which doesn't matter what you think of Nirvana. They have stuck around musically. You cannot deny the impact that that song had. And I, I identify with that because I remember seeing that video for the first time and going, this is unlike anything I've ever seen or heard. Yeah. Even though it was very reminiscent of things that had come before, we didn't know that. Yeah. Because at that point, what we knew was big hair, lots of cleavage, you know, power cords, women writhing around on cars, power cords, which, you know, smells like Teen Spirit, to be fair, is a power cordy song, but That's not true. in the same way yeah. that other artists were. And so that had a huge impact. I remember going on a beach trip with my friend Jason. And again, the hotel that we were staying in had cable. And so we sat down and watched a lot of MTV. At that point, if I wanted to see Beavis and Butthead or something, I had to go to a friend's house. And that's where I saw Radiohead's Creep video for the first time. Danzig's It's Coming Down video for the first time. Creep, and those by the way, songs, still to me the best Radiohead song. It's a good one. I love Karma Police, but it's a really good song. And again, a great video because it was just so raw yeah. and emotive. And those things really shaped what impacted me and made me the person that I am. Now, again, referring to Nirvana, you grew up in Seattle. I did. So you were there for the grunge explosion. Grunge, which, sidebar, fucking hated the fact that it was called grunge. <laughs> <laughs> like it's not grunge, it's rock. It's heavier rock with punk influence, but I guess that's just too complicated to say. Yeah. So it needed its own word, whatever. Yeah, actually I was there and the Smells Like Teen Spirit explosion onto the scene for the rest of the nation kind of missed us a little bit right. because it wasn't that new. Right. It exploded kind of in the same way, but it was a much diminished impact because a lot of kids my age and what we were i guess 13 ish mm -hmm. when that song came out somewhere we, around there we knew we knew like i had friends that already had nirvana's first album i didn't because i wasn't super into rock at that point though that changed pretty rapidly and we weren't that shocked by it because pearl jam had been around right. a little bit well, the other video Nirvana had been around that time for too a while that made an impact on me because i hadn't heard a live first the first video and song i heard from pearl jam was even flow mm -hmm. so again i missed the alive train because i just wasn't keeping up with music right i got i got a lot more into the i don't know grunge whatever new mid-90s rock movement uh more when soundgarden really started coming up yes I did, however, I felt completely in love with Temple of the Dog. Yes. Which was a half homegrown, like from my hometown homegrown nice. amalgamation band or whatever. And Yeah, it was basically members of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden coming together for a tribute album, basically. Yeah, and still have a lot of love in my heart for Temple of the Dog. I think they're great. Alice in Chains is still one of my favorite bands. Alice in Chains was awesome. 
that that movement of music came at around the time when I was in my early teens, which is, of course, when you actually start developing your own tastes and stuff. Right. And when something impacts you, it impacts you hard. Like, I can hear a song on the radio now. Well, I don't really like listening to the radio, but I can hear a song now and go, that's amazing. I love that song. Nothing hits you as hard as it does when you're 13 or 14. No, it's it's really hard to find music that can reach me in that way anymore. Right. There have been a well, couple of like songs. you said, you are searching for your own identity. Yeah. And if it's the right song, if it's the right artist, they're screaming your identity at you. Yeah. And so that was cool. But before I kind of got into that, as it became a bigger deal, even in Seattle than it had been before, uh, I was, I'd started dancing when I was really young. So dance music was actually kind of my thing. Mm-hmm. Like I gravitated and still do. In fact, given my druthers. Boy, did we have a lot of that in the 80s. <laughs> Given my druthers, most of the time, if I just need some music on, it'll be some sort of techno house Are there club. pictures somewhere of you with leg warmers or baggy, gaudy clothes yes, or headbands sure. or anything? Yeah. Well, my grandfather bought me hammer pants for Christmas one year in the of 80s. Of course he did. Oh, that's fantastic. Which was hilarious. He called them my seven-day shit pants. <laughs> He's got a point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I totally did. And I mean, whatever. I was nine. <laughs> I don't know. So when I was like a preteen between nine and 12 or whatever, I was super into dance music and hip hop. Now, I'm like a white girl from the suburbs. Mm-hmm. I'm not really hip hop and rap's target demographic. So I kept a lot of my love of rap and hip hop to myself. A, because my parents hated rap, because what parents right. didn't hate rap. And B, because, I, I mean, not to sound stupid, I was in a, you know, kind of middle to upper middle class neighborhood. So I had black friends. It's not like I didn't know any black people. And I was right. on drill team with some black girls and we were friends. And that's cool. Not like, eh, I have some black friends. Like We were <laughs> friends and it didn't matter because we were young and it like race was just not an issue at that point to us. Right. But I started listening to rap music and kind of caught on to the fact that I shouldn't be listening to rap music. Right. Like I wasn't supposed to get it or like it, but I did. I really, really, really did. And so I started just kind of by myself. I would listen in public to like Fresh Prince and Naughty by Nature, the the rap groups who kind of crossed over into Top 40 Hip Hop. Sure. I would listen to them in public because everybody's supposed to listen to the stuff on the Top 40 station. Right. But I got super into NWA and Dr. Dre. Right. I was actually really big into Eazy-E, and he is definitely not a 12-year-old white girl. No, he's not. Rapper. Like, that's not a thing you're supposed to like. But I did. I really got into it. And so I would listen to Well, again, we as a generation were lucky enough to be there when rap hit the mainstream. And it was scary to a lot of people that didn't understand it. NWA, Public Enemy, bands like that were terrifying. Yeah, to, to old people. people. That didn't know where it was coming from. <laughs> and I I just didn't have the context for that. I didn't really I got the sense that I wasn't supposed to understand it or relate oh, to yeah. it. Oh yeah, I mean, there's nothing funnier than when a rap group like NWA hits the mainstream. So you've got the whitest of white girls in their bedrooms going, "Fuck the police." Yeah. yeah. And that's still an image that I can make fun of, even though that was totally me. Like, you know, the kid, you know, Michael Bolton from Office Space? Yes. The complete nerd white kid who's just a tech geek who absolutely loves gangster rap. Yeah, that's me. That was me. Like, I 
really dig it. And I miss what I consider kind of the glory days before the kind of new wave of gangster rap took over. Well, I mean, the reason it's so great that we were there at the beginning is because of any musical movement and the same thing happened. The same thing has happened to everything that becomes popular. There are the pioneers and the people that mean it. And then there are the people that go, oh, we could make money doing this. And what that has turned into is a lot of with a few exceptions here and there. Obviously, I still do love fans like Outkast and things like that. They're not gangster rap, but still. I mean, a lot of the hip hop that has come up since sort of the pioneers is not from the streets. It's not from people that are angry and need to get something off their chest. It's from people that just string a couple of rhymes together and then show, well, especially in the 90s, it became all about showing how much bling you had, how many scantily clad women you could shove into a bedroom. Well, yeah, I mean, like, the the soul of a lot of rap music, and believe me, I understand how kind of ridiculous it sounds to be a mid-30s white woman in the suburbs talking about the soul of rap music, but... So I I recognize that. However, (laughs) I feel like a lot of the soul has gone out of a lot of new rap. And that's that's just a thing. So I tend to try to find like just past underground rap. Right. So that it's still got soul, but also isn't shit. Right. Because a lot of underground rap is just bad. It's just bad rap. And I don't like that. I mean, there are always the people that manage to break through who are sincere, who are talented. You know, uh, and that that's with any musical movement. But again, like we were also lucky in that hip hop and rap seemed so strange when it first hit the mainstream. But then it, it became so separate. But then as kids grew up with that music, what you saw, what ended up happening was a lot of it started to tie into they started to use elements of it in everything. I look at a band like Otepna right now that uses elements of grunge, elements of real metal, and elements of hip-hop to make this one beautiful new hole. And they're, they're not just trying to copycat. They're very sincere about it because they grew up on all of that music. Well, what, what got me is that, of course, I'd been listening to whatever dance music had been. Michael Jackson, Madonna... Right. The stuff that was pop dancey. And then several real and decent hip hop recording artists. I mean, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Right. There are a lot of kind of almost laughable ones on my list, like Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Right. I mean, but they had dance in it. It wasn't rap exactly, even though they were rapping. But it was also right. not dance music because they were rapping. So it was just right. this nice blend that to me at that age, as a dancer who looked for music I could dance to, that was a natural progression. And so I went from like pure pop dance music to kind of crossovery hip hoppy dance music to slightly more rappy hip hop to rap. And that was just a natural progression for me, though you can't really dance all that well to rap. <laughs> I did find not the old school rap. No, I did find something very compelling and evocative about it, and I still do. I still really do like it, and so my tastes haven't really evolved past that. I'm still very nostalgic for mid '90s, like Tupac and Dre and Snoop Dogg, and I am probably not shockingly a pretty big fan of Eminem. You know, Eminem's great. I mean, there are definitely controversial things that he says, but I mean, that's kind of the point, isn't it? I don't agree with everything that he says, but again, that is also kind of the point. And I just you know, don't me, really with... care. I mean, I care in that this is whomever is giving me their story. What I want to know is what your story is. Like, if you right. have your soul in your music, I don't have to agree with you or relate to that. What I can do, though, is appreciate your story that you are giving right. to me. And I love that. 
I love that sort of honesty. It, it did get to the point where it seemed like white culture was embracing hip hop so much. I remember reading interviews with rap and hip hop stars who, you know, I don't want to say they were begrudging about it, but they would talk about how, you know, this music was from the streets. And I originally started writing this music about where I live and the people that I know. And now I go I do a show and it's 90 percent white people. <laughs> they were like so thrown by that. But there were so many influential, you know, just in that. Obviously, you've got the classic Run DMC. They're sort of looked at as the father, the forefathers of hip hop and rap. And the things that I remember having an impact on me, the Fugees had actually a pretty big impact on me. Ready or not was a big video at one point when mm -hmm. I was starting to, again, it was only intermittently because I never had the video channels. I never had cable except for that one year. So if I went to a, a job that had the TV playing in the background, you'd see that video over and over and over again. The Killing Me Softly cover that they did was mm -hmm. playing over and over and over again. Just different things were on a loop, but a lot of things were on a loop back then, but there are only certain things that sort of stick with you. So as far as hip-hop is concerned, they were definitely the ones that I really remember sticking with me the most. Obviously, when the, the Chronic came out, it was massive. Yep. And I was in full on entrenched in my metal days back then. So I tried to pretend I didn't like it. But you kind of can't deny the power of a song like nothing but a G thing. No, you, you, you can't deny the power of a song of, of an album like Snoop's first solo record. Oh, God. Yeah, they were so great. <laughs> They really are. And again, those guys, you know, definitely they portrayed a lifestyle, but it wasn't that they were advertising for that lifestyle. They were just saying, this is the lifestyle that we live in. This is what it's like in the inner city. Yeah. And then it became a glorification of it. Like, yeah. go back and look at something like Ice Cube's Today Was a Good Day. That's not a glorification of the inner city. That's saying that, boy, I'm glad I didn't get killed. Yeah, right. But then it became a glorification from people that I think came later and just didn't understand that he was just trying to show the world, like, this is what it's like. This, this is the part of America you don't see. Yeah, the fact that all of these things are notable that you don't find notable. Right. Because you don't notice. But yeah, These well, are the, things the, I notice. Yeah. The music that I get nostalgic, I'm kind of like you. I'm still so stuck in the 90s with most of what I listen to. Right before we started this podcast, I just went somewhere and was listening to, for those about to rock, we salute you the whole time. The whole album, beginning to end. And those are the bands that I still, you know, I still love Metallica. I still love ACDC. And obviously those bands led me to discover others. But you want to talk about when, you're, when your taste is forming, I can remember having every tape, every cassette that ACDC had made up to that point in a tin that used to hold Snickers candy bars. And I would carry it with me on every long trip and just listen to the albums from beginning to end. Not necessarily in order, but usually pretty much in order. You know, starting with high voltage and going all the way through, I think the razor's edge at that point was the one was where we had gotten. And that was 91, 92. Mm -hmm. So that was when I was really sort of expressing myself and identifying with something. And, you know, the cult, I was one of the only people I knew that liked the cult because they were such a West Coast thing. But I discovered them by accident because I had asked my mom to get me Master of Puppets for Christmas and she couldn't. So the guy at the store said, well, we don't have Master of Puppets. Uh, here's here's something he'll like if he likes Metallica and convinced her to buy the Colts Electric album, okay. which I'd never heard of them at that point. Right. But I sat down and I really enjoyed it and I became a fan of the cult. And I remember getting made fun of wearing a cult T-shirt because everybody's like, who the fuck is the cult? <laughs> well, they were huge in California. Yes, and they, they were They were such a West Coast band. They weren't unhuge in Seattle. We had a lot of West Coast stuff. Oh, actually, I'm surprised that I didn't bring this up. Not just grunge, but I also have the pride of hometown of Sir Mix-a-Lot. Oh, there you go. Who Who doesn't remember Baby Got Back? Who 
probably, probably is really the one that actually got me to move from like dancey top 40 hip hop to rap more right. because they played Baby Got Back on the radio, which made it accessible. Mm-hmm. But he's a rapper. Like he's not a hip hop artist. There's not a lot of dancey. But that groove in that song is pretty undeniable. Oh, it's amazing. And he's he is supremely talented. And that became very clear when I started listening to more than just Baby Got Back. So I had all of his work. Well, and again, when you're young, and especially when you're somebody like me who is trying to be rebellious and listen. And I literally at one point wanted to listen to nothing but heavy metal. Mm -hmm. If it was hard rock and heavy metal, I was listening to it. That includes bands like Biohazard, Typo Negative, Machine Head, Metallica, all the things that I still listen to on a regular basis. But you were kind of weren't allowed to listen to anything else. But I did go through a rap phase. I said, you know what? I want to try this rap stuff. And uh, I went out and bought Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him. And I went out and bought Young MC. Mm-hmm. And I went out and bought, I think that was about it, actually. Oh, but Young anyway. MC. Oh, my God, you know, yeah. And I, I still can't, you know, as cheesy as you can, you can obviously make a lot of funny, cheesy jokes about 80s music, 90s music. You know, you look at the way MC Hammer dressed when he hit it big. Mm-hmm. And you can make so many jokes about that. But again, the fun and the groove of some of that music is pretty undeniable. Yeah, it's it's strictly pop, but they didn't have an issue with that. Right. Like, they didn't care. Yep. But then you look at somebody like Madonna. Uh, you mentioned Madonna earlier. I mean, I have vivid memories of the controversy that the Like a Prayer video created. Which was or, so ridiculous to me. Now it is, yeah. But you look back and you go, for the time, that's why, like, if you like Lady Gaga today, if you like any of those people, uh, Miley Cyrus even, who were trying to, quote unquote, push the boundaries, Madonna was the reason that they are here. And yeah. we can't forget how influential she was. Absolutely. And, you know, videos like Like a Prayer or videos like or the book when the book Sex came out. Everyone's yeah. like, oh, God. We were both growing up in a time when music was changing and reaching places it could never reach before. That was the other thing is just MTV in itself, as cheesy as it can be, as awful as it can be. And many times it is. Don't get me wrong. I'm not necessarily waving MTV's flag. However, it brought a dimension to music that can never the influence can never be underestimated. Like it deserves to be mentioned in in the halls of of anyone that wants to discuss the evolution of music because it took it to such a visual medium that we'd never seen before. And all the time, it eventually ended up being, you know, it was a 24-hour network. And you're just like, it's just music. Yeah. You know, Headbangers Ball. Oh, right. You know, and it created pop culture icons. It created Beavis and Butthead. You know, Liquid Television. If you remember, Liquid Television was where Beavis and Butthead came from. Yep. Where Eon Flux came from. All that came from just the initial idea of appealing to a younger generation by trying something new with music. Well, since we are now talking about stuff that happens on TV, let's move away from music and go to TV. All right. Talk to me. Of course, when you're young, most of the stuff that you watch are cartoons. Right. My first vivid memory was of watching TV is Sesame Street. Okay. And I would, uh, when my mother was single before she she got married to my stepfather, do you remember the segment on Sesame Street where the guy would always have like a tray of stuff? He was a chef and he'd be on the top of a very large staircase and they would count the number of things and then inevitably he would fall down the stairs and the stuff would get everywhere. Uh, No, because I didn't actually watch a lot of Sesame Street. 
Ah, well, that's my first memory of TV having an influence. Because okay. what I remember is my mom used to make me for a snack, peanut butter and jelly saltines. And I would, if that one would come up, I would stand on the arm of the couch. And when he fell, I would fall and try and crush the saltines into my face. Okay. That's my first memory of TV having an impact. What's yours? I think my first real memory of TV having an impact is actually not until I was 12, maybe. I don't remember exactly when this happened, but Disney Afternoon. Okay, see, and I'd never had that. Disney Afternoon was the two-hour block from 3 to 5. Oh, wait, is this where DuckTales yep. and... School got okay, out at 2.30. We made it home just in time to catch Gummy Bears, DuckTales... Chippendale Rescue Rangers, Tailspin, Darkwing Duck. Okay, Rock, yes, I did watch that. Gargoyles. Like, it was, it shifted over, like, whatever, the it five years. It started with the Gummy Bears. It started it? with Gummy Bears, yep. And let me tell you something. Whoever wrote the theme songs for all of those fucking shows, I can sing you the goddamn Gummy Bears theme song right Today. now. Today, oh, yes. And, and I probably haven't seen that show in 20 years. It's going through my head right now because we're talking Gummy about bears, bouncing here and there and everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, it's... It's ridiculously it's good. It's ridiculous. And DuckTales was the same way. Yep. DuckTales. Woo! So Darkwing, good. Darkwing Duck. Duh. Yeah, so it's amazing how some of that stuff stays with you. Real one where I was like, this is TV that I am scheduling time around and yes. making sure that I am going to have this be a part of my day. I never missed it. Yeah, me neither. And and, and also the animation quality was so good. Yes. And it's a really strange idea to take all these sort of well-known Disney characters and give them shows where you create new characters around them, but you also basically let's give Disney characters a job. That was the, the idea of every one of those shows. Take Baloo out of the jungle and make him a pilot. Take Chip and Dale and make them investigators. <laughs> it was like, what Disney character can we give a job to next? Yeah, that's really kind of the first one I really remember. Who was your favorite character on those shows? Because I've already got mine. I had a crush on Chip for a while. Oh, oh my God. I can't believe I forgot about this until this very moment. Launchpad? No, no. Even oh. before the Disney afternoon, when I was oh, little, okay. little, I had, I, I was probably five, but I just now remembered I had the hugest crush on Danger Mouse. Danger Mouse. Yes. That was in the year we had cable. So we had Nickelodeon. And oh, I my God. Remember worshiping Danger Mouse. So much so that this was in the days where we could not record television. Obviously, this is way before any sort of DVR equipment. I recorded an episode of Danger Mouse on audio tape by just putting up my jam box next to the TV yep. during an episode so I could just listen to it whenever I wanted and recall the visual images. It was an episode where they were going into a haunted house, and I remember vampires singing. Okay. But yeah, I used to play Danger Mouse on the playground at, at elementary school. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. So good. It was so good. And I had the hugest crush on him. Like He, he was, was pretty awesome. He was In a fact, British spy. He was so cool. I think they finally brought Danger Mouse to Netflix. I will have to go back and watch them. You need to. I think they'll hold up because of the sensibility. They also did a really interesting reboot of Mighty Mouse in the 80s from Bakshi Animation, which was very funny. Is that, uh, is that the Mighty Mouse that I would have watched when I was a kid? Yes. Then I loved that show. It was very satirical. In fact, I remember an episode, the only episode I clearly remember because I remember just being so funny is the one where William Shatner's wig was terrorizing downtown Hollywood, California. <laughs> And that kind of humor was 
you 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 would think that a lot of people wouldn't think a kid would appreciate that or get that. I thought it was hysterical. So that also I think was the turning point in writing for shows. I mean, other than the classic Warner Brothers cartoons, which will always hold up. There was an era when they just really wanted to focus on the simplest stories possible. Usually had to be morality tales. Every Care Bears episode, every G.I. Joe episode was really just a morality tale with a very simple, straightforward story. And then all of a sudden, cartoons like Danger Mouse and Mighty Mouse come along, and they're just interested in being sort of satirically funny. Yeah, they were great. And Hanna-Barbera actually did a lot of cartoons like that. Not They were kind of midway between your after-school special cartoons and your Danger Mouse, Mighty Mouse cartoons. One of my favorites was the Snorks. Oh, I forgot about the Snorks. Yeah, like I hated the Smurfs. I did not like them at all. I found the whole thing stupid and boring. I loved the Snorks. Yeah, it's so weird, isn't it? It really is just, let's put the Smurfs underwater. Yeah. My parents finally let me put a TV in my room when I was in high school, but it was our little 12-inch black and white, no cable. (laughs) Oh my God, that is exactly what happened to me. Yeah, with rabbit ears. So I could get the four channels. I could get ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS. That was what I got. But the day my parents put a TV in my room was like the best day ever. I didn't actually really watch it. The only reason I wanted it is that I had to be at school at 6.20. So I had to get up at 5 because I was a teenage girl and it took me an hour to get ready. So I would get up at 5 and after I was out of my shower routine at 5.30, I would go back to my room. 5.30 a.m. the snorks came on. So 6.20? Yeah. Why? Well, school started at 7.25 and there was a zeroth hour class that started at 6.25, which I took. And I was young, so I didn't care. <laughs> I didn't, right. I Two hours of sleep was enough sleep for me. So I would get up at 5 and I would go take a shower. I would come back to my room at 5.30 just in time for the snorks. The snorks would play while I got ready. I would leave for school at 6. And it was perfect. I watched the snorks every weekday and they just played it in syndication pretty much yeah. the whole time I was in high school. So well, I would just rewatch it all. What's interesting to me about the attachment we have to these things, and this is why, like we were saying earlier, music will never have the same impact as it did when we were younger, is because... It's just really a soundtrack. Music and TV and movies end up being a soundtrack to our lives in our most formative years when our brains are still kind of forming, our views of the world are forming. We're not even both. I'm sure neither of us are saying that Snorks was actually a particularly good cartoon. It may have sucked. I don't know because I haven't seen it in a long time. But that became a part of your routine in your life. Yep. I I don't remember much about the content of the show. But for you, it became a part of your life. Yeah. And that's what a lot of these are. I honestly don't remember the content of the show. Good. I think they were. And I think they held hold up pretty well. Probably. But other things were just there for you. You know? I know one that absolutely almost assuredly does not hold up. And it had uh, Sarah Michelle Geller, uh, Mira Sorvino, huh. Brittany Daniel, a very young Brittany a Daniel. Or a TV no, show? A television show. I don't remember. It was that called Swan's Crossing. No, I never heard of that show. And it was a teen soap opera. Oh, of course. Was this before or after 90210? It ran from June to September of 1992. 
And it was like five day a week, if I recall correctly. Just like oh, we're talking opera. real hardcore soap opera. Yeah, like what? it was a soap opera, soap opera. Wow. I was hooked from show one. Oh my lord! And it was it was an absolute soap opera. There were like switched at birth things and <laughs> political blackmail. Like, and this was teenagers. They were young, of course, rich suburban teenagers. And it was soap operas like my grandma watched. But for me, for kids my age. And were they sexually active? No. I mean, there was like making out or whatever. Of course. But there, I don't recall there ever being an even like a fade to black situation. Right. That wasn't ever that I remember any part of the show, which is probably for the best, I guess. That's interesting. And it ended <laughs> the last show which is what pissed me off and probably has kept it in my memory more than the fact that it was a good show at all, is that it ended on a complete cliffhanger about the and story never brought the and show a to back. be continued and it just ended and they canceled it and it never came That back. is one thing that really does piss me off about networks. If you know you're going to cancel a show, can you not just let the writers give just a one-off, hey, we're going to tie up some loose ends, yeah. okay, then we're done. Yeah, I don't. It really irritates and angers the shit out of me. As I was looking up the stuff that I was feeling nostalgic about, I looked up a, a bunch of this. And apparently, earlier this year, the producers of that show or something said they were going to make them available for streaming. So hopefully, that'll be on Netflix, and I can go back and watch them and remember whether or not it was actually worth remembering. Yeah, it, I'm gonna bet you now that it wasn't because Maybe really, not. like 90210 really wasn't even a good show. It just sort of hit this site. It hit this moment. It hit this. It was. An the right place at the right yep. time with the right characters and the right level of and 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 the right level of sex and the right level of intrigue and the sure. right level of risqueness for a, a teen oriented show which happened to have people that looked like they were 30 playing teenagers but that was pretty much everything but that even reminds me of something like you know do we remember 21 jump street other than the movies that have come out Hell, I do. yes i do that was the first time we ever saw Johnny Depp. Yep. Or and Richard Grieco, where the, wherever the fuck Richard he went. Richard Grieco, that's right. <laughs> or Peter DeLuise. Right. And I don't remember watching the show that often, but that was also at the beginning of Fox. Yeah. So I would watch that channel a lot. And that was, I've ex talked about this on the podcast before too, I think, the first time I saw Robotech, which had a huge impact. Yeah. But that was also from, say, 8 to 10, they would get two hours where they could put original programming. And that was when Married with Children, the Tracy Ullman show. Yeah. That gave birth to The Simpsons. The Simpsons, yep. It was great. And then there was a show called Werewolf that was very Incredible Hulk influenced about a guy who was a werewolf. Yeah. And then eventually they started expanding and very early on in the process was when 21 Jump Street came along. And I vaguely remember that show, mainly because of, I mean, the cast was really just gorgeous. <laughs> but there was always that part of it too, just like 90210, where you look at it and go, I don't know if I'd believe those were high schoolers. Yeah. Because if you don't know, the plot was basically, they're all adult PIs who go undercover as teenagers in high school. Yeah. And none of one of them look like teenagers in high school. Not at all. None, I know for a fact, none of the kids in my high school look like Johnny Depp. No. <laughs> but most of us wish that there were at least a couple. Yeah, it would have been cool. So yeah, those are influential. But yeah, going back to the car, do, did you watch Fraggle Rock? Yes. Yes, I did. Did and you again, watch? I didn't get to see these shows much because we only had the, because Fraggle Rock, I think, was a cable show. Was it? I think so, because we didn't get to see it regularly at all. Hmm. Did you ever watch Square One TV? Oh, that's so vaguely familiar. What was it? It was like a learning. It was a PBS show. 
it was like a learning show, and it was mostly math and sciencey. And they had was that the one that had MathNet on it? Yes, yes, MathNet. MathNet. Math I awesome. actually played MathNet with my neighbor when I was a kid. Yeah, dude, MathNet ruled. So yeah, that was the. It was an educational show that was it every episode or just a couple episodes. They would do a dragnet spoof called MathNet. I think it was every show. But maybe it wasn't. I honestly don't. You had the two people, the very stoic guy detective and the very stoic woman detective who were the hard bitten PIs who were really just there to solve math problems. Yeah. Like really super basic math problems. Yeah, extremely. Like these people in the real world, well, they just wouldn't cut it in the real world. And I mean, that square one kind of preceded things like where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? Yes. And stuff like that, the educational children's programming. What was the song? Do you remember the song for Square One? But yeah, and, and to me, like, there was just the children's shows. I mean, obviously, everyone remembers Mr. Rogers, but then there was stuff like The Electric Company, and that was a huge thing. Yeah. But then you get into the shows, like, that I vividly remember watching. Again, in the year we had cable, I was obsessed with two shows that were live-action shows, both of them, and it was You Can't Do That on Television and mm. Double Dare. Yeah. Who d- who didn't watch those? No one didn't watch those. Like, if you're a child in the group? and you didn't watch those, there is something wrong with you. I mean, I've known people that didn't because they didn't have it. Right. I guess, which is fine. But seriously, you would go to friends' houses to watch it. It was... Yeah. They were And great. people forget now, you're born into a world with cable TV. We were there when it started. And it yeah. was amazing. I mean, HBO alone to me, I was just like, so you can watch movies unedited. Yeah. The only problem was they only had like three movies they would show. It was like on rotation. But every time that HBO theme song came up, I was like, oh, what movie is it going to be? Yeah. Those free weekends on Showtime. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. And of course, if you had cable TV, you also remember the scramble tit factor. Of course. Which, you know, we definitely got our fair share of tits that appeared through static for just one second. Right. Because obviously not many parents were ordering the Playboy channel. But back then, if you didn't order a channel, you still got it. You just got it staticky. Yep. And every once in a while, it would clear just enough for you to see nipple. All right. But, let's do movies. Yeah. So moving on to movies. What is your first memory of a movie that left an impact? Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Okay, yeah. It is the only movie on this list for me. Oh, really? Yeah. Not because I didn't enjoy other movies. I watched a lot of movies. We all did, basically. Yeah. It was the defining movie of my childhood. I think it was the defining movie for a lot of people's childhoods. I imagine. It was sort of, it was so generational. Like, everybody wanted to be Ferris Bueller. Everybody wanted to be that cool. I wanted to be Mia Sarah, but I mean. I wanted to be Ferris Bueller because of her. Yeah. It's so rare, I think, in pop culture for something to try so hard to be so cool and to work. Because usually when people, older people are making a movie where they're trying to be quote unquote cool, it's a miserable failure. Well, I mean, John Hughes had something. He had he had an incredible track record for knowing what he, would appeal to he that He had a generation. gift for that sort of movie at that time period. Of course and he did. the casting choice for Matthew Broderick was simply inspired. Yes. It was incredible. He did the best. He was the best. He's the best. And the writing was 
quirky and had a slightly sardonic sense to it that a lot of movies aimed at. Right. Well, a lot of times, too, get. the quirkiness of that movie came organically. Yeah. It never felt like it was trying to be quirky. Like, it right. came from the characters, not the, okay, let's come up with this weird, quirky situation and then sort right. of build a story around it. Insert gag here. Right. The, I, it was really just top to bottom, one of the best movies of its time period, certainly, and of movies, in my estimation. Is and that it, the first movie you ever remember seeing, or no, just the movie that had the biggest impact? Just the one that had the biggest impact. And I can That's, still, to this day, quote it word for word, beginning to end. I'm sure you can. I'm not going to prove it. Remind me never to watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off with you. I don't. When it's playing, I actually just enjoy it. Oh, um, I know people that do, though. Yeah, me too. Uh, and it drives me insane. <laughs> It's like two minutes in, you're like, oh, that's cute. And five minutes in, you're like, would you please shut the fuck up? I could include things like Star Wars, Monty Python's Holy Grail. I could include a whole bunch of stuff that had some sort of impact on the way that my sense of humor developed or the types of movies that I liked or whatever. But really, the one at the top of the list is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Because it seemed like all those things rolled into one with that movie. It had all those aspects. It shaped a sense of humor. It was a generational movie. Yeah, I I totally get that. So that's really kind of the one that I have to mention, even though I just mentioned two others. (laughs) You know, I have fleeting memories of movies growing up. I was just talking about this yesterday. I have a vague memory of leaving theater for The Return of the Jedi. Okay. Not before it was over. I just, for some reason, the memory that sticks out to me about that movie was walking back to my car with my mom. And it was at the Bijou Cinemas on Haywood Road, which has been closed for years. And it was the first big movie theater we had around here. I don't remember, actually. I think I remember Yoda dying. Okay. But it's always been weird to me. Again, your brain's a dick. Why do I remember the walk back to the car? Yeah. Was it because the movie had been so impactful that I was still soaking it all in on the walk back to the car? I don't know. But so that's not really a movie movie memory because I was six. Right. Again, who knows if that memory is even accurate. Maybe we didn't walk back (laughs) to the car. Maybe we piloted bicycles back to the car. I don't know. But then there are other things that stick out. Again, I've talked about horror movies on other podcasts, so we're not going to get deep, deep into that. But there were definitely to be afraid of something is very impactful. Yes. I have very stark memories of in the first Poltergeist movie when the guy's face starts to melt off when he's looking in the mirror and it turns out to be some weird ghost hallucination. Even though that part doesn't really make any sense in the rest of the movie, it's very impactful. Sure. Wasn't the clown doll for me. It was the guy's face falling off. You know, things like the Sleepy Hollow, the Disney Sleepy Hollow cartoon. Oh, right. Yeah. And uh, I was just talking about this on the Bearded Ones podcast with very famous actress Alex S.O. from Starry Eyes. You should listen to that episode and check out that movie because it's awesome and she's awesome. But I remember seeing Fantasia in the theater. And I remember seeing that last bit with the demon mountain and the devil coming up. And Dude, the Fantasia was freaky. Out of- there was a lot of freaky stuff in Fantasia, but it also was a brave movie in that it's very hard to hold a child's attention for that type of movie. Because two minutes into this classical song where you get to see the frolicking unicorns, you want to go, somebody fall on something. Somebody say something. But we all remember the Sorcerer's Apprentice section. And for me... That ending section with all the ghosts was terrifying. Yeah, it was a freaky ass movie. But then you go through things like I remember The Great Mouse Detective, underrated Disney cartoon from the 80s that I remember very clearly seeing in the theater. I have a thing about Disney movies. (laughs) I love Disney movies a lot. Sure. I'm not sure why, because it's not just that I've gotten older, I'm pretty sure. But Disney movies from my childhood and like a little before and a little bit after are Mm -hmm. the saddest movies ever. 
But I think that's why. That's why they were good because a lot of children's entertainment likes to talk down to children. Yeah, no, I mean I to- that is totally why. But like, think about it: the Fox and the Hound is it's very sad. Ho- Dumbo. Yeah. I mean, Bambi's not sad, but it starts with his mother getting shot. That's. I mean, that's the thing every kid remembers from Bambi, though. And like every oh, Thumper's so cute. What are what happens in Bambi? His mother dies. Yeah. That can happen? Yeah. And like kind of the last one, the last Disney movie that really had that sort of deeply motivating sadness was The Lion King. Yeah. And they've all, I mean, they're all character stories. Disney hasn't lost its knack of making decent movies. But none of them since The Lion King have just been heartrendingly depressing. I mean, you could say, I don't know, I guess. I was going to do a Pixar reference, but they're, but by the time Up came out, I guess they were completely separate from Disney yeah, at this yes. point. But, you know, there are definitely moments to Disney movies that are sad. When Pixar was a part of Disney, not gut-wrenchingly sad isn't a character dying, but I can't watch Toy Story 2 without crying when Jessie gets abandoned. When she tells the story of getting abandoned, Jessie the cowgirl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're playing that freaking Sarah McLaughlin song, which right. Sarah McLaughlin's sole purpose in writing music to make was to be cry. background music to make you cry. Oh, yeah, it was devastating losses. It was, you know, watching Mufasa die. I, to show, to illustrate the power of a movie, you just have to see an instance where when I was a senior in high school, we went on a trip to Washington, D.C. And this is a van full of juniors and seniors in high school that you, sorry, Mr. Bus Driver, are not going to get us to shut the fuck up. Right. Until you put on The Lion King. Then the van will be silent for an hour and a half. Yep, unless you're singing like, along to Hakuna Matata or whatever. No one made a sound. Nice. It was like, it was amazing. To, that is the power of a well-crafted story. Yeah. And uh, again, like Bambi's mother dying, it showed sort of a bravery in letting kids know that, you know, bad shit does happen. The way most villains are dispatched in Disney movies is usually pretty brutal. Yes. I just watched last year, I think, because it came on Netflix, The Great Mouse Detective, because I hadn't seen it in a while. And I don't know if you remember that movie or not, but the Moriarty type evil character, you know, it's not sort of glossed over that he dies. It's not like, a, oh, he was defeated and sent to jail. He dies. Yes. You know, the great thing about a good story is that it doesn't take anything for granted. And I think those stories hold up so well because they weren't afraid to show kids that, you know what, bad shit will happen in this world. And you just have to figure out a way to overcome it. And sometimes it happens cruelly and painfully. Yeah, totally. Vasa's death wasn't pleasant. No. That was the other thing. It's like you get to the part where he dies and you're like, oh, I'm so sad. Before that, he's getting trampled to death. Yes. That's not a pleasant way to go. He's being trampled to death on purpose. Yes. Like someone committed murder by wildebeest. Yes. Or, but there were, you know, the other big animation studio at that time, though, that really wasn't afraid to get a little dark with their movies was the Don Bluth Studios. Secret of Nim was a pretty traumatic movie to watch. Yes. Because that, again, showed death and darkness and showed that, I'm sorry, the world is not always a safe place. And not in a, ooh, we might get caught kind of way, but in a, no, you might get eaten by an owl type way. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, that was, there was a power in those movies. And the Don Bluth Studios animations were so good. I watched Secret of Nam again for the first time in a long time last year. I don't know if it'll hold the kids' attention now, but as a movie itself, it holds up pretty good. And it didn't talk down to kids. Yeah. And those movies will always make an impact. Jim Henson's Dark Crystal. I mean, that That's movie a- had huge impact on me. And it's creepy as well. 
absolutely it is. And that's what I loved is, and maybe that is what kind of gave me a taste for my love of horror is that, you know, there's so much crap that came on as far as what kids were concerned with in the 80s. Again, the Care Bears had like three fucking movies. Dude, that first Care Bears movie was badass. Okay. We might have to part ways here on that opinion. I have seen at least parts of it recently. Nothing about the Care Bears ever attracted me. I mean, I, I admit I liked the Care Bears when I was very, very little. Sure. But the first movie is badass. <laughs> or was. I'll take I haven't gone it. back. I have not gone back. But yeah. I did watch I it. I think you might want to give that one a second look. Uh, it was. And it was there. The villain was also dark, dark spooky in terms of a movie that is made for like five to seven year olds right but i think that's what set like the bluth and disney studios apart is that dark to them was fucking dark yeah dude it's like like we're gonna show you die that's what's gonna happen well and the weird thing is it's not even i mean the fox and the hound and dumbo are probably the they're the worst yeah. for that they're 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 just like if i think about them too deeply i will start to cry like it's yeah. stuck it has stuck with me that well but do you remember the sword in the stone of course i do there's the part where arthur gets turned into a squirrel mm -hmm. and he has this little chase adventure with this lady squirrel who wants to have his babies yes and then he gets turned into a human again and she's just left having yeah. now lost the sudden love of her life yeah she's just that they didn't have to put that shit in there no they didn't that, that was horrible because now she's just alone and yeah. we're just gonna move on like no big deal yeah she'll probably kill herself i mean but she's not the one we're focused on and that was some seriously dark shit that you didn't really have a reference for when you were six. But I can look back on that now and be like, that's very impactful. When you're a kid, that stuff leaves you with a feeling that you simply can't yeah. intellectualize. So you know there's something wrong about it. When you're older, you go, oh, my God, that's why. Because most kids have at least some kind of compassion in them. And we all we tend to draw the futures for the characters we see ourselves. Yes. When we don't get the rest of the blanks filled in. And the future for that character is probably suicide. <laughs> but then there's even something like, you know, what, what was great about even the classic Disney movies was the imagery and the way they told something scary in a G-rated way. I mean, Pinocchio turning into a donkey sounds very silly. Yeah. But it's kind of terrifying. Yeah. You know, and it's it's it, it's those morality tales that get us too, because it's always that, especially in the older ones, it's like that whole section of Pinocchio is basically be a good boy or something terrible will happen to you. Well, and of course, the ones that are based on stories sure. are the ones that have that because, you know, right. stories like books, fiction can. Well, all those old fairy tales are just dressed up morality tales. Yeah, exactly. It's this or else. And it's but usually or else else's something bloody and so awful is going to happen to you. So, yeah, those definitely had impacts. I mean, you can't. That is why I think we have an attachment to those things, too, because I made the reference earlier. A lot of things we have an attachment to just because they're part of our lives. But if you look at a movie like, say, Back to the Future. Yeah. Kids today still love that movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. So those came along at not only a formative part of our lives, but they were also well done movies. And Disney movies in almost all cases were that. Yeah, they I weren't totally. afraid to talk down to kids, but they were well-crafted, well-told, well-acted. And sad as balls. And sad as balls. And kids, I'm sorry, need that. I agree. And that's why I think that, that it's sad that they don't, they don't make them like they used to. It's just way happier. They don't. Like, I mean, there's still messages of loss or yeah, something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because Hero you 6, can't have like, the Hero really good happy ending. starts with a death. <laughs> right. Not very far in. They give you just enough time. 
and they usually are very good about constructing for a child the type of mentor or parent or sibling that you want and then ripping them away from you. Yeah, I don't and know. And that does make you realize that, you know, you need to enjoy the time that you have because this is a world that doesn't really give two shits about you. Right. And will take away the things that are dearest to you. And it's up to you as the individual to get over that. And that's why I think those stories do hold up. It's not just about let's throw something dramatic at you. It's about let's throw something dramatic at you so we can show we can sort of let you know that you're not always going to be protected by someone. And that's what a lot of those stories end up being just about being independent, figuring out who you are and how you can survive in a world that where that can happen. Yeah. And not just survive, but be happy and be a full person. It's not like The Walking Dead, where it really is just about we got fucking survive. You know, so, yeah, those movies were definitely impactful. Gremlins, the first Gremlins was a huge <laughs> impact. Ghostbusters will always have a huge impact. Sure. Because I remember my babysitter at the time who would babysat us every day while my mom was at work in the summer before we got old enough to be latchkey kids, snuck us out of the house with her boyfriend to go see Ghostbusters. Okay. And she was like, shh, don't tell your mom. And I never have until right now. Sorry, mom. But yeah, we loved it. We absolutely loved it. And I think it still holds up. Oh, it absolutely does. Maybe not the effects so much, although the effects hold up better than you'd think. But it's the characters and it's the humor and it's yeah. it's the things that allow you to enjoy the story. I mean, and it's dated, but that's all movies well, that are made at a time period are going to be dated to that time period. But it absolutely still matters. I'm, I'm teaching an acting class right now. It's like a four week class at the little theater and I've got four students and they're all ranging in ages from 11 to 15. The 11 year old is a boy who in this last class showed up with a Ghostbuster shirt on. Okay. Because so many times you try and show your kids something that you grew up with and that's when you, that might be the first time you've seen it since you were a kid. Yeah. And all oh, this is great and you sit down and watch it and they're like, ugh. Or you love it and they don't. But certain right. things in my experience, the movies that I think really prove that they have good staying power, things like Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, movies that never lose their magic. Yeah. And that's there's a reason that Star Wars is as big a deal as it still Absolutely. is 30 years later. Who framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, definitely. Showed the kids that, and they absolutely loved it. And the effects still really hold up. And that was made in, like, 88. Yeah. So it's just, you know, basically the things that we stick to, what's cool about seeing that and seeing other generations come up and appreciating those things is it almost validates it in a little bit. It almost says, no, this isn't just nostalgia. This is a really well-told story. Well, I think that that's one thing that movies, I don't know if they largely have to lose their value over time. I mean, some, the examples that we're giving are clear exceptions, I mean, but there are I remember seeing Masters of the Universe in the theater. Something tells me that I'm not going to see any kids coming home and going, did you see that Dolph Lundgren Masters of the yeah. Universe? That was amazing. I think that movies struggle with that where books largely do not. Well, then, hey, great segue. Let's lead into books. Okay. I racked my brain because I read and have always read a lot. Right. And I started early and haven't really stopped since then. So coming up with the books that shaped me would be even more than the whatever hour and a half we've already been talking about other right. stuff. So I narrowed it down to three main ones that I want to mention and talk about and a Let's couple others that I will just say. The you are more of a reader than I am. I don't have the attention span for it. I've never been good at reading, but there are books I have as well. But since you are sort of more the voracious one about reading, go ahead. The first one was the Wrinkle in Time series. Ah, uh, yes. I started to read it and never finished it because of what I just said. <laughs> it's, I don't, I don't really want to get into it because 
it is a, a vastly popular series and sure. lots of people have read it or at least know what it was about. But it was, it did shape kind of how I viewed science and math. And I read it when I was very young before I realized that math was very hard. Yeah. And after I read the first book in that series, I changed my mind completely about whatever I had wanted to be when I grew up before that and decided I wanted to be a scientist. Oh, cool. I mean, then I found out math was hard and I changed my mind again. But Or as they would say today, the devil. Right. It is. And it still holds up. I have reread the series again several times as an adult. And it is still just as fantastical, just as compelling as it ever was when I was a child. And I recommend it strongly to anyone for yourself or your children. Excellent. And when you're little, you get stuff like the Ramona Quimby right. books. And those are kind of the ones that you get in school as yes. they're teaching you to read. So and the, nothing wrong with those books. No, no. They're, gr they're great. And they actually still hold up now as well. What was There's the... something that will always appeal about a mischievous child or a child that you can identify with that isn't necessarily bad, just a little on the clumsy side or gets into mischief. You know, there's always something appealing about that. Yep. And Judy Bloom as an oh, author. Oh, yeah. Basically her huge library. huge at one point. Her whole library is fantastic. I would recommend those for more more young girls than young boys, but just kind of young people in general. They yeah. have really great messages as like children's stories are meant to. But they, much like Disney movies in their own way, don't talk down to kids. Right. They're very real. They're incredibly relatable. I, I strongly recommend those as well. And I read all of her books a bunch when I was a kid. Right. As did basically everyone I knew. Right. Who read at all. But the ones that, that have really stuck with me that were kind of not books that everybody read, they were even more extracurricular. It started with The Borrowers. Okay. Do you I remember vaguely the remember Borrowers? the book. I definitely remember the movie. I never bothered to see the movie because I read the book. It didn't make an impact. I just remember that there was one. <laughs> They were good for when I was little. I have not gone back to reread them since I was probably 10 or 12. Sure. So I don't know if they have held up, though I imagine that they did. I'll bet they do. You know, something like that or something like the Narnia books that are really intended for a young audience. They yeah. just do it with a fantasy element. And again, as long as you make the focus about the characters. I think the mistake a lot of people make in children's entertainment in general is it's like when you see somebody that does something just because they think, oh, a kid will find this funny. It usually is so unbearable and embarrassing to watch. Yeah. If you're watching a play where it's not a children's theater play where it's not going well, so a character just says, I'll fall down. Whoa. Yeah. It's really embarrassing. But where you, if you just go, you know what? Kids are at least not necessarily smarter than we think, but more intuitive than we think. Yes. So I can appeal to them on that level. And it's like anything else. It's like a good comedy, a good mystery, a good horror movie, a good drama. It's not about the jokes or the scares. It's about the character experiencing those things. Yeah. And as long as that's strong, it'll carry you through a lot of that other stuff. Absolutely. There was a series, another series that my dad used to read to me. Like he would read me a chapter before bed every night. And it was like a four, I think, if I recall correctly, book series about Matthew Looney. And that his, I've never heard of. His, his space adventures. Okay. And mostly that's on the list because they were acclaimed children's stories. And 
I think probably because of that, lots of people read them. But right. they have stuck with me because my dad would read them to me. Right. I could read. I was old enough to read, but this was kind of our nighttime ritual when I was sure. young. He would come Well, that is a in. very strong connection. Yeah, and he there. would read me a chapter of these Matthew Looney books. And they were very vivid as he was reading them to me. And that has stuck with me over the years. Yeah. I have not gone back to reread them. They were either out of print or just kind of out of circulation. Does who? Does he still have them, you think? Probably not. They've moved so many times. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, too. That's the part of nostalgia that really is sort of heartwarming is you could probably go back, even if those books don't hold up. Let's just say they're terrible. Right. You probably would still go, I don't give a shit because this is so closely attached to such a strong, positive memory. Yeah. I can easily go back and watch, like, again, not to beat up on it, but it's the first thing that pops in my head. I've seen footage of the Masters of the Universe movie recently. It is not good. Right. But I don't have a strong emotional attachment to it either. Like, there are plenty of things that we have. There are plenty of movies, TV shows, books, what have you, that were not really good at the time, but because of some sort of strong emotional thing that connected us to them, it still makes them precious. Absolutely. And for me, you know, books, I I can remember my mom, like, reading The Raven for us every Halloween. Oh, awesome. Um, But other than that, I don't really remember getting stories read to me. I'm sure I did, but the books that I remember, and again, this all sort of leads to how I became, I guess, such a fan of horror. The first one I'll say has nothing to do with that. It was basically somebody wrote a book a long time ago called Hoople's on the Highway. I don't know why this book sticks out to me, but it was basically, let's take the vacation movies and make them very kid-friendly. Okay. So it was that story. It was a family going to an amusement park and everything went wrong along the way, except it didn't have the dark edge that the first National Lampoon's Vacation movie did. You know, there were no dogs dying or hubcaps being stolen. Sure. You know, every year, like I said, going to my grandparents' house, it's a good six to eight hour drive. So even though I got motion sick and I couldn't read in the car, for some reason I could get away with reading that book in the car. I don't know why. Huh. And it was it became a tradition that when we had long trips, I couldn't go unless I had that book with me. Well, I mean, I could. They would have made me, but I didn't want to go <laughs> unless I had that book with me. So for at least a good two or three years, that book was just a book I read once a year on long trips. Nice. But speaking of the Raven and Edgar Allan Poe, I don't remember where I got them, but they used to make the series of books. They were like pocket books. They were very small very square and they would take classic literature and sort of condense them into these things and really condensed because every other page was a picture as well but that was the first time i ever read the telltale heart oh the fall of the house of usher which terrified me i can still remember on a saturday afternoon in my house with the sun shining through my window laying on the bed and reading the fall of the house of usher and at one point when he's talking to the brother And the sister is just running through the house sort of going insane. They had this really nicely drawn picture of her almost looking ghostly before she even died running through the house. And the one guy's in the chair looking at her and the brother is sitting there with his head in his hands. And that was such a powerful image. It gave me chills. I I was thrilled to death the year my parents got me like this really beautiful hardcover thick complete works of Edgar Allan Poe yeah volume yeah oh god I would read it some of the pages some of his poems were and still kind of are my favorites of all time oh sure and those pages like the spine started to break it was so good 
he was yeah and you know the the stories it's it's really hard to say where it connected with me because i am much more visually oriented so the pictures helped a lot not that i couldn't imagine it but then when you see something yeah the way it's drawn you know the cask of amontillado you know they had a picture a very nicely illustrated picture of right when he's sort of putting the last bricks up in the wall and the guys behind the wall kind of looking at him like, oh, fuck, you're really doing this. You know, <laughs> that story will all that story will stay with me mainly because of that image. But bar none, the fall of the House of Usher scared the shit out of me. Yeah, he was supremely talented. Yeah. And then the other things that I remember, I mean, there were the things like the Garfield books. I had all the Garfield books, loved Garfield. But as far as book books were concerned, for my money, when I was a child and even now I would get them if I could. You couldn't get better than the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Those were really fun. It was so much fun because it was such a good idea that seemed like, how did it take them this long to come up with this? Not to mention the fact that you almost always died. (laughs) Yes. You almost always like second page in, uh, okay, I'll jump over the ravine. And then, you know, you're in at the end of the story, you just fall off the ravine and die. But also it was another interesting way of kind of in a more fun, light way showing that, you know, you get attached to this character and the character can die. Now you have a little bit more control over this, but you could still die. Let's not forget this character's in a very dangerous situation. And it was a good way to make books interactive, whereas normally they're not. That's really what was so amazing about it was the interactivity. I mean, there there are obviously things now with the Internet and laptops and tablets and everything that really I mean, I just finished the second season of Telltale's Walking Dead series last night. And you want to talk about interactive. That is a choose your own adventure book in video game form. And it's it's amazing. So it and you actually get to watch these characters live and breathe. But there's something about a book that it just they were so revolutionary for the time. And the stories might not necessarily be the they're best not, told things. <laughs> but it's just the fact that you had that power over them. You had the power of choice, which I didn't care. I would have bought every Choose Your Own Adventure book you could have given me. And, uh, you know, not to sound like a Saturday morning serial or an after school special, but it, it is it was a great way to get kids into reading. Speaking of which, how could we have skipped reading Rainbow in the TV section? But we did. And we're sorry. Well, I mean, because who didn't watch Reading Rainbow? Everyone watched Reading Rainbow. Yeah. But yeah, so those books were very impactful to me. Um, the one I was actually really happy about, there is a series by John DeChancey called the Castle Perilous series. Mm-hmm. And he wrote it in like the late 70s through the 80s or something. And it was seven or eight books. And just, I don't remember why I got my hands on the fourth book in the series. But I didn't know at the time that it was a series. I just kind of picked it up and read it. That must have been confusing. (laughs) It actually wasn't. It was fine. The way that the series works, they're pretty serialized stories. They take place in the same location. And several of the characters, like most of the main characters are the same main characters through the series. But they're kind of self-contained little adventures. And I was, I don't know how old I was, 13 or 14 maybe, developing a more cultured sense of sarcasm and wit. Sure. And the opening line to Castle Murders is, it was a stark and dormy night <laughs> because the this woman who is going to become a main character in the series is in her dorm room at college and it's raining outside. I see. And of course, everybody knows it's a dark and stormy night. That's right. so cliche. Sultry. The night was sultry. And to take that and just, just a little bit, turn it on its head to make a different evocative image. Right. That tells you exactly what's going on with no exposition. <laughs> yes. It was a very creative way to open a book. And that opening line got me hooked almost right away. 
And I read that book, realized it was a series, went back to the beginning, read all the way through it. Right. I went back about three years ago and reread the series even better now than it was when I was a kid. Oh, that's good. That's the other thing, too. When you can trust your story enough to make it multi-layered and not in a way that's like, hey, we're going to put in an adult reference here or an inside joke, wink, wink. Right. But just, again, good stories are good stories. Yep. Um, And like uh, Harry Potter didn't come out until I was well into adulthood, but we started reading it right away and – Still one of the best series of books. Well, and ever also written. the beauty of that series too. And I was just talking about this film the other day. Is someone who had a son Harry Potter's age when the first book came out. He literally grew up with Harry yep. Potter mm-hmm. because they didn't try and keep them as kids or nope. anything like that. But that was a whole other topic right there. We could do an episode just on Harry oh, Potter. Yeah, we totally could. So yeah, and then I, you know, I eventually too because I think of the Edgar Allan Poe influence got into you know Stephen King and things like that. But that was when I was a teenager. Yeah. So the ones that really had an impact were things like that. And there's just such a, there's an attachment to those things. And everybody goes through that phase where they're growing and they're changing and they want to throw everything out. And they're like, ah, I don't know, these books are dumb. Kid books, you know, because they were designed for children. They were Edgar Allan Poe light. But if I could have those books again to at least give to Juliana or some other kid, I wish I did. Yep. And that's kind of the saddest thing is that I think one of the reasons we're nostalgic about certain things is because we know the likelihood is they're gone forever. We yeah, may be like, able to find a copy of them somewhere, I but used it will to never have, be the ones that we read. I used to have a little cassette slash um, record player that I would listen to, like effectively audiobooks. And I had the full A.A. A. Milne's original Winnie the Pooh yeah. storybook on cassette tape. So I never read them, but I listened to them all the time. Yes. Well, that was the other thing, too. The things I remember were the little uh, record books. Yeah. You'd buy the book with a little record in the back, and you'd put it in the record player, and you heard the story as you were reading it, and it would tell you when to turn the page. And, you know, there's a charm to that. There's, like, you show the kid that now, and they're like, what the fuck is this? You know? But there's such a great charm to that. I had some Star Wars books that did that. And you got to hear the lightsabers and the lasers and everything. And it was so it was really the bridge between listening to an old radio show you would hear your grandparents talk about. Yeah. And TV and movies. But it was portable. You couldn't just watch a movie anytime you wanted to. Yeah. I used to have a vinyl storybook record combo thing of Tiki Tiki Tembo. Yeah. Do you remember Tiki Tiki Tembo? No. It's a children's story. It's pretty short. I mean, the name is vaguely familiar, but I couldn't tell you what it was. And the story is basically cultural appropriation of the worst kind, and it's wrong. But the story is basically, in ancient China, the firstborn son of a family would have a really long... You should be saying it the way the author intended. Ancient China! (laughs) Happily, no, there was none of that. (laughs) The the firstborn son would have a, a really long, important name. He was the most loved, and so he would have a name like... All of the most wonderful things in the whole wide world, but right. in Chinese right. or the fake Chinese. And any sons after that would just be named whatever. So the story is about Tiki Tiki Tembo, No Sa Rembo, Pari Bari Ruchi, Pit Berry Pembo, the firstborn son. God, I'm embarrassed already. And his younger brother, Chong. <laughs> oh, poor Chong. Yeah. And the story revolves around. Why I'm not special? The youngest son. The youngest son falls down the well. Tiki Tiki Tembo goes to get him out of the well, and he's able to say, Chong has fallen in the well. Here's the ladder. Get him out of the well. Then Tiki Tiki Tembo falls down the well, and Chong has to run and tell people. And because he can't shorten his name, he is running all the way to his mother and then saying, Tiki Tiki Tembo no Sarambo Paribari Ruchi Pipari Pembo has fallen into the well. Oh, God. This sounds agonizing to read. But it was 
the story revolves around the fact that he either nearly or actually does drown because his name was too long. Right. Oh, okay. So they don't do that anymore. <laughs> right. Again, call it a kind of cultural morality tale. Don't think so highly of yourself that right. your title Basically. might kill you. <laughs> but the the illustrations in the book were kind of in that very Asian stylistic sure. painting, like watercolor style painting. Sure. So they were kind of evocative of the story in the setting that well, it was absolutely. supposed to be in. And so you could do that. See the illustrations for whatever scene was being set on the record. Yeah, illustration. You know, I don't know. I don't want to sound like an old man. Be like, things were such better in the day. But that sometimes when I walk into a bookstore now feels like a little bit of a lost art. I mean, one of the reasons that a book like Jumanji stuck with me is not necessarily the story. Sure. It's the illustrations, which were phenomenal. Where the wild things are. Oh, God, yeah. The illustrations in that book really made that book. And I mean, they have to be appropriate because part of the reason that you have a book is so that you can illustrate it. Yes. While you read it, your whatever your imagination does will draw it for you. And that is a joy of reading, at least in my estimation. Of course. But there absolutely is a, t- a place for illustrated books. Oh, absolutely. And I think that you don't need to look any further than where the wild things are to have that shown to right. you because that is the story without illustration there isn't one. Right. I mean, it, it's well, not like a again, bad story, but. No, no, a, it's not a bad story at all, but also like it is a very simple story. Yeah. But that's to me what, what the appeal of Jumanji was when I saw the book for the first time was that was the first time I'd ever encountered such photorealistic artwork. I remember clearly going, is that a picture? And then you look closer and you realize it's not. And the the artwork was so good. Another, right, because we got to wrap this up, but just real quick, uh, I want to give a special shout out to the other books that were really an influence with me and really captured my imagination. I loved reading those Mysteries of the Unknown books, anything about the Loch Ness Monster Ghost, anything. And uh, I... There was a Time Life Mysteries of the Unknown series that I got as a, a subscription to as a Christmas present one year. Nice. Oh, it was great. They were great. Tons of great stories. Tons of there was even in one of them where they talk about out of body experiences and how you can meditate yourself into one, which I tried several, several times. And because my brain won't shut the fuck up, it never worked. <laughs> but it, those books were great. And one thing I have to mention we missed in the cartoon section. How can I not have called out Batman the Animated Series, which came along at the exact right time and was such a good quality cartoon that that will always stick. I remember the first episode I saw was the Man Bad episode and just the fact that at one point Batman bleeds a little bit from his nose. I went, (gasps) Batman's bleeding in a cartoon. (laughs) And everyone loves that cartoon, so it's not like skipping it meant that I didn't revere it, but it was awesome and will always stick with me. So you got anything else there, Carissa? Oh, I have a ton, but I mean, that's we can get to there it all There are hundreds later. of things we could point to that are attached to memories in our childhood, and everyone has them. And they're, they're the cool thing about nostalgia to me is that there are two levels of it. There's the generational level that everyone shares, and then there is the stuff that is completely personal to you. Yeah. Most of the rest of mine are going to be stuff about computers and technology. Well, maybe we could do a technology episode one day. Cool. Because it is interesting that we, again, like I said at the beginning, we were, I think what made our generation growing up unique is that we were there sort of at the beginning of commonly used home technology and got to see it evolve into what it is now. Yep, and be a part of it. um, We both have very strong memories, I'm sure, of getting our first home PC when we were very young. Yep. And that was a great memory. So that's a whole other podcast in itself. We could just talk about the evolution from the first time we got a home PC to now when you're basically holding the equivalent of 500 home PCs in your hand. 
Yeah, my smartphone is more powerful than the shuttle that went to the moon. Yes. And you, none of us use it for anything that productive. No, not at all. <laughs> so, well, this has been a lot of fun. It's definitely brought back a lot of memories for me. Just the snorks. I forgot all about the fucking snorks. <laughs> so, Carissa, if anybody else wants to talk about us, wants to compliment us like your friend did about how great this podcast is, where could they do that? They can email us at lucky10,000 at Gmail or get us on Twitter at lucky underscore 10K. Awesome. And if you have a positive opinion about us and you want to share it with the world, a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher would help because we'll read it on the air. And if you have a negative review, you want to get it about us on the air, just give it five stars and then tell us we can shit in each other's mouths and we'll still read it. We'll read it. We won't shit in each other's mouths. No, no, we'll no. We wouldn't your do that. Opinion on she the lives in Texas and I'm in South Carolina. This wouldn't be practical. <laughs> but, you know, we'll read anything you say within reason. It'll be your words, so just choose them carefully. Sure. But as long as it's a five-star review, we will read it. So don't forget to check us out at that Gmail email address. The Twitter is always up and running. Chris is doing a great job managing that. Don't forget our other podcasts on the Bearded Pods Network, the Bearded Ones Comedy Podcast and Teddy and the Baseman. And uh, thank you to the network's Tangent Bound Podcast, Amusings of a Geek, for having us on. Check out all those great shows. Absolutely. So thank you guys for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you got lucky tonight. Good night, nerds. Thank you for being a part of the Lucky 10,000 with your hosts, Evan and Carissa. Email us at lucky10,000 at gmail.com. Find Lucky 10,000 on Twitter at lucky underscore 10k. And visit our podcast network site at beardedpodsnetwork.com.